At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Charlie Gibson. Welcome to the second shelf of the bookcase. We now have been at this long enough that the first <laughs> shelf is filled and we're moving right along to the second shelf. But lest you be worried about it, we have infinite capacity in our bookcase. Yeah, I shudder to think what the first shelf looks like. How crammed full is it? And, you know, just how many books are in there? Today's show, as always, for me, is a real treat. Are you super excited to have this I am super excited. (laughs) I am super enthusiastic. Oh my gosh, I sound just like a horrible bouncy bunny. In the station, you're always high octane. Yes, I know, exactly. I am a live wire. But at any rate, this year, we had the privilege of sitting with two amazing authors, Anna Quinlan and and Patchett. And Kate had been super excited to talk to both of them. I was super excited to talk to both of them. And I was super excited to get their feedback. Oh gosh, people want to hit me now. I would want to hit me now. But at any rate, both of them said, have you guys read the new Alice McDermott called Absolution? And both of us said, Absolution? What's that? And they said, it's going to win all of the prizes this year. You guys have to get a copy of it as soon as is humanly possible. And boy, if you're not moved to buy something because Anna Quinlan and Ann Patchett give you a recommendation that you just don't have a soul and you're not a reader. (laughs) So of course, that's the first thing we did was hunted down two copies of Absolution and it was worth the hype. It's a beautiful, beautiful novel that I couldn't wait to talk about. And so we had a chance to talk to Alice McDermott. I hope we don't jinx her by saying that she's going to win a lot of awards with this book, but she should. It is about the early days in Vietnam, in Saigon, before the war began, late 50s, early 60s. And it particularly revolves around two women who were there, Trisha and Charlene, who I find them both to be metaphors. Trisha for the sort of wife of the 50s who is very traditional and help out your man and whatever, and in Vietnam because we can make things better, which was one American attitude toward there. And then the other attitude is Charlene, who says, we will make it better. Now, Alice McDermott says, I'm interested in character. I'm not interested in metaphors. But I think if you read this book, Absolution, you will find Charlene and Tricia to be metaphors. I thought they were. I also agree. I think the characters symbolize different American intentions in Vietnam. And I think they also symbolize two sort of different sides of, I think colonialism is often, not always, but often well-intentioned. There's a hubris to it. We know better. We're going to come in and show your country how it's done. And that's Charlene about her relationship with Trisha. I know how better to do things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that did represent a lot of what America was thinking at the time. It's also a novel about the changing role of women. Yes. Women's movement was really beginning to get a little steam in that period of time. And Trisha's more the more traditional wife and Charlene, as I say, the women's movement to come. So anyway, I found it interesting to read on both levels. And having been through that period of time, I think it's very insightful in what 
was going on in Vietnam in that period of time without writing about the war itself, just writing about the women in the American community that was in Vietnam with lots of engineers, quote unquote, who may or may not have been working for the CIA, but probably were. So as I say, a really good read and on many levels. Yeah, I think it's, again, I think it's unique in that way. It is a book that takes place in Vietnam at around the time of the Vietnam War, but it is not about the war. It's really about, I think, the intentions of helping another country and the disconnect that often occurs and how the results often disconnect from the intentions that we or some other country has so benevolently shown the way. What are the effects of that? And boy, does she write it well. She writes it through memorable characters, beautiful writing, and an amazing plot. So our conversation with the great, the fabulous, the the talented. (laughs) The writer about whom Kate is super excited for you to hear. And super excited, (laughs) Alice McDermott. Just calm down, kid, calm down. (laughs) Alice McDermott, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you in the bookcase. The new book, Absolution, I know it was inspired in some ways by a lack of female perspective in historical fiction, but I want to open up by letting you talk about the role of the quiet American and how it inspired Absolution. Yes, thank you. Again, thank you for having me inside the bookcase. It's nice to be in a bookcase. (laughs) Good place to be. Yeah, Graham Greene's The Quiet American was a novel that I think I read it for the first time as an undergraduate at Oswego State, way up on the shores of Lake Ontario in New York. And even then, this would have been in the 70s, and certainly since, because I've reread it many times, I've always been struck by how prescient he was politically. The novel was published in 1955, and the way he foresaw America's missteps, tragic missteps in Vietnam, just sort of amazing and so smart. But I also recognized, even as an undergraduate reader, that the women in the novel got kind of short shrift. The (laughs) Vietnamese character was especially shallow, although, you know, Green was too good of a writer. There was a sense that she knew more than she was saying. Even he couldn't keep that out of his book. But there was one scene in particular, very, very brief, where Fowler, who's the narrator, the journalist, the British cynical opium user narrator, glances over in this milk bar and sees two American girls finishing their ice cream. And obviously they're secretaries in some embassy or State Department. And he thinks about how clean they look and uncomplicated and how passionless they seem and how their lives were so simple compared to his rich, complex life. (laughs) You know, and even at 19, I thought, ah, no. That's not that that can't be right. That can't be right. What are these American girls doing in Saigon in 1950? They're really interesting people. So I've lived inside the Beltway for 30 years plus. And over the years, I have run into so many women of that generation who may well have been those two uncomplicated girls who either, again, work for the State Department or were military wives or corporate wives who were over there girls looking for an adventure, working for the U.S. government. And every time I would meet them, they would tell me these fabulous stories. I've always thought, you know, Green, for all that he knew, how much he missed. He didn't see the women's movement coming. He certainly didn't (laughs) give credit to, you know, complex female characters. So I always felt 
because I admire his writing and I admire the book, I wanted to sort of write something that would, you know, and be, as they like to say, in dialogue with Green's vision. So these women, these women on the periphery of events who had their own concerns and had their own lives. And even though the men were busy doing CIA things and, <laughs> and military industrial complex things, they had some very important and full of passion lives themselves. As we have done these podcasts, we have gotten very interested in beginnings, beginnings of novels. And indeed, at our beginning, a wonderful Irish writer, Niall Williams, cited Edith Wharton that the first sentence or sentences of a novel should encapsulate all that is to come. You have a very interesting beginning. You say there were so many cocktail parties in those days. And when they were held in the afternoon, we called them garden parties, but they were cocktail parties nonetheless. This is about life in Saigon on the cusp of the Vietnam War. And then you say, you have no idea what it was like for us, the women, I mean, the wives. What were you trying to signal to me, the reader, with such a beginning? There is throughout the book, and this is something that developed over time, but I think Williams was mentioning this in your conversation with him. There's also an intuition that you bring to the opening pages of a novel before you've written the rest of the novel. You have some unspecific and undefined sense of what you're aiming at. So for me, yeah, there was the voice this is someone looking back at a time in her life and beginning to attempt to explain it. But there's also the duality of garden parties that are also cocktail parties in those days. And then also the astonishment of looking back through time 60 years later. Mm -hmm. And even the histories, <laughs> the, the moments in history that we have lived, we look back in astonishment and say, oh my gosh, we believed those things. You write of the early 1960s and the life for Americans in Saigon, but you weren't even 10 yet. You were a young <laughs> pup. <laughs> so how do you get an authentic sense of that period in a foreign land? You know, I think that's the appeal of it because it's not something that I experienced. So, you know, the challenge as a writer to put yourself behind the eyes of such a character and to wonder what was her life like. Again, I've had conversations with women of that era and of that age. I've certainly read plenty of novels that take place then. But in some ways, I think it's tremendously freeing that it's not your own experience. I had young copy editors on this novel saying like, are you sure women wore stockings in Saigon? In, it was really hot. <laughs> you know? Is that a true fact? <laughs> you know? And did they really spray their hair and they were dressing up and they were having all these parties and they were so conscious of clothes when all this was going on? You know, and you read a couple of memoirs and you say, oh, yeah, no, it's true. It's how the past almost becomes fiction. It, it seems like the stuff of story even if we have some experience of it. So for me, it was hearing this woman's voice, mm. you know, maybe a generation ahead of my own experience, but enough of an echo in my own experience that I could distinguish the difference between what my life had been like coming of age 10 years later, 20 years later, and what her life might have been. And that speaks very much to those first lines. 
she's addressing them to a woman of my generation and saying, you have no idea. Trisha and Charlene are your principals. Give me a brief description of each. All right. Trisha is the narrator of the first part of the book. Again, she is the young bride, you know, raised in the 50s, child of immigrants, first to go to college, Catholic college, of course. She's a good Catholic girl. And she marries a peer, another guy from the same milieu, but he's up and coming, a lawyer, and sent over to Saigon with Navy intelligence when she's still a young bride. So she is there to do whatever she needs to do to advance his career, to learn how to be gracious at cocktail parties and garden parties in this strange place where Americans are gathering. Charlene is a corporate wife, a little bit older and a lot more confident. And she's a model for Trisha. This is how it's done. This is how you advance your husband's career. But she's also completely opposed to Trisha's idea of self-sacrifice, be quiet. Charlene is the beginning of the women's movement. <laughs> Charlene is that first rumble mm. of even within the confines of what I'm expected to do, I'm going to demand my own space. But Alice, as I read about Trisha and Charlene, and maybe I'm wrong, but I saw them, tried to see them as embodiments, maybe I should say symbols of specific but different traits of American character, particularly as applied to Vietnam. Did you intend that? What were you trying to say about America as embodied in Trisha and Charlene. Yeah, we kept discussing between the two of us is does does Charlene symbolize American colonialism? Does Trisha <laughs> symbolize American colonialism? What is the colonel symbolize? Like we were wondering sort of what you were intending with those characters and was that intentional? Yeah, you know, character always comes first for me, symbol later. <laughs> you know, if a character becomes a symbol then I'm not interested anymore. I'm interested in the flesh and blood. But of course, symbols, just like stereotypes, are based on something real. So for me, first, they are flesh and blood characters. They're mothers, they're wives negotiating social milieu that does not give them many opportunities to be who they are, to feel effectual. That's what literature does. But on the other hand, they are indeed representative in many ways, good intentions gone awry, the determination to do good, followed by the determination to define what's good for somebody else. Charlene is that, let me tell you how you should behave. Let me tell the world how it should behave. I don't approve. I don't approve of your shoes. I don't approve of that dress. I don't approve of suffering. I don't approve that children should suffer. So I'm going to take care of all those things. So they are indeed, that's why they end up in a novel. They're, they're, <laughs> they're not actual characters. They're characters who are flesh and blood and have all those human traits, but also give us perhaps a way to understand where we went wrong, what the insidiousness of good intentions gone awry can lead to. That's interesting because you talk about good intentions and there's a lot of definitions in this book of doing good. And I think one of the lines that really struck me on page 225 is you say, but self-sacrifice is never really selfless. It's often quite selfish. 
So I was wondering, do you fall somewhere on that spectrum? <laughs> Is there such a thing as true self-sacrifice in your eyes? I think given the human condition, <laughs> if we can talk about the <laughs> capital H, capital C, um, <laughs> you know, who we are, that it's complicated. It's complicated. That is there satisfaction in self-sacrifice? Is there personal satisfaction? Of course there is. Well, then does that mean it's less than fully altruistic? Well, not necessarily. You know, do we need the good that people try to do? Yes. Do people often fail? Yes. Does the good sometimes turn in, especially in retrospect, to be wrongheaded and evil? That's also true. This novel is so much about yes, but, <laughs> you know, Here, here's a case <laughs> yeah. for doing good. Yes, but, you know, here's a case for the people who believe sincerely that America's intervention in Vietnam would end the march of communism and would save the world, who believed that in their bones and believed it with all good intention. Were they good people in their struggle? Yes. Did it turn out well? No. Were they blinded by their confidence? Yes. So I suppose in our current moment, I've grown very impatient with how sure we all are of what we know and who's wrong and who's right. And the right's pointing at the left and the left is pointing at the right. And the young generation is pointing back to the other generations. So in many ways, this novel came from me. Yeah, but you know... <laughs> They tried, you know, they really screwed up. Both those things can be true at the same time. So I like the idea that you may potentially have titled this novel, yeah, comma, but, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but you didn't. You called it absolution. And does anybody in the book actually achieve it? Uh, yeah, well, there's the rub. And do we as a country deserve it? I think if you think about absolution as a recognition, a full recognition, a moving away from you don't know what it was like to now I do know what it was like. If we can do that, then we can begin to not forget, but to absolve given context and circumstance and stop blaming and pointing a finger and then learning too. I mean, it's again, it's not erasing the past. But it's looking at the past with maybe a broader and more generous. You did the best you could under the circumstances. You screwed up royally and you were wrong. But that's not to say under the circumstances, I wouldn't have done the same. I want to turn from the book, but, but I do so reluctantly because I think I honestly thought as I read this, that this is a book that will be taught in English classes at times. But I want to talk a little bit about you as a writer, and I want you to repeat a story that I read that I just loved, which was how you decided or, or really what convinced you that you could be a writer of fiction based on something that you wrote for a teacher that was totally wrong given the assignment and how that teacher surprised you. I'd love you to tell that story because I I, I think it's a great story, just oh, a great well, story. Well, thank you. And it's very dear to my heart. So here I am at Oswego State. As I said, 
I had a Regent scholarship. My father had three kids to put through college. So Oswego was where I was headed. I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to study. Playboy magazine had ranked Oswego <laughs> in the top three party schools that year. So that sounded really good to me. Anytime so- Playboy comes up in the same word as college choice, you know <laughs> where you're going. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, go ahead. So I took a course called The Nature of Nonfiction. And the guy who taught it was a wonderful retired Air Force colonel named Paul Briand. Tough as nails. One of the first assignments was to write an autobiographical essay. So I went off and wrote this three-page little experience, none of which had happened. It was about two (laughs) girls um, going into New York City for an illegal abortion. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know anything. Very dramatic and, you know, trying to help each other, but one is very disapproving. And I wrote it in the first person as if I had been the friend helping this. I knew if I had had put myself as the girl who had to have the abortion, he'd probably send me to psycho <laughs> to counseling. And after he read my essay out loud to the whole class, he looked up at me and said, McDermott, see me after class. And he, as I say, he was tough. I was, uh, he was going to say, yeah, you know, you can't do this. This is made up. That's dialogue and detail and place. And there's no such place. <laughs> And so I sheepishly went down to the to the well of the lecture hall when everybody else had left. And he looked up at me and said, I have bad news for you, kid. You're a writer and you'll never shake it. And wow. it's the best How thing nice. teachers do. I knew I knew he was right. I didn't know what what to do after that. I don't know how you be a writer, (laughs) but I recognized it wasn't like, oh, I am. No, it was, oh, yeah, I've always known that. But I don't know if I ever would have known it if someone hadn't told me at that time in my life. My last question is, I've heard you say about rewriting, quote, sometimes nothing short of starting over will do. Are any of your books (laughs) do-overs? Um, yes, but I won't tell you which ones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, have you? I mean, where in the process is there ever a process where you say this is too late to scrap it? Because that strikes me as very intimidating advice for a new writer. Yeah, it's why I've fallen into this terrible habit of always working on two novels at the same time, and that makes it a little bit easier. That if you get to the point where you say. This was a nice idea, but it's not working. I'm not interested anymore. There are other stories that I could tell. If you have something else sort of cooking, you can toss it and it's not like, all right, it's going to be another day before we get dinner. You know, I mean, I've I've got something else on the (laughs) stove. So that gives you the courage. But you have to learn how to distinguish what still thrills you, you know, and sometimes it's just a matter of, I can't let this character go. I haven't found the right story or the right voice or the right rhythm of the sentences, but I can't abandon this character or I can't abandon this metaphor that that appeared. Well, a lot of people find writing to be a jealous mistress, but you obviously take delight in it and we take delight in reading you. Mm. Absolution is the novel. I wish you great success as it now comes to the public. Thank you. Alice McDermott, a great pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Some rapid-fire questions for Alice McDermott. Alice, so many authors to whom we have spoken talk about loving the rewrite more than the first draft. Do you know when a novel is done? Sometimes, (laughs) and sometimes not. (laughs) I remember finishing my novel called After This, and it ends with the words, it's a gift. And I thought the novel was going to go beyond the scene, but when I wrote It's a Gift, which makes sense in the context of the story, and I also knew that's my favorite W.C. Fields movie, It's a Gift. As soon as I wrote that line, I said, I'm done. Do you have a finishing ritual when you write the end? Do you have something you always do? Oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try that. <laughs> Usually what I do is, is, is in complete fear, I immediately go back to the other book that I'm writing just in case. I never show my work to anybody until it's just about finished. And then I only show it to my editor and my agent. So when the, my last novel, The Ninth Hour, I'd sent it to my editor. Again, we'd been working together since I was very young and he was very young. And I waited a week for him to read it. And then the phone rang and I saw he was calling. And my first thought was, if he hates it, that's okay. I'll throw it away. I've got this other book. I'm okay. I'm okay. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, there is that mystery. You've been living with these characters. You think you know what you're doing. You say, I've done this before. I think I know what I'm doing. I hope. But then you also get to the point where... Am I making sense? Do these sentences even Hmm. have any logic to them? (laughs) There comes a point where you need someone to say, yes, I get it. I get it. And uh, fortunately, I've had that. (laughs) A game we play at our house. You're banished to a desert island, Alice McDermott, and you can take three books with you. What do you take? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I suppose I should say the 
Shakespeare, the Bible, and and something handy like you know how to start a fire. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Does a writer always have story in mind? Can you step away for a couple of days, or maybe weeks, or months, and clear your mind of writing and story, or is it always with you? I'm afraid probably it's always there, not consciously. And speaking of Anna Quinlan, she has that great quote from her husband, can you get up and get me a beer without writing an essay about it? <laughs> you know, I, I hate to have the people around me think, oh, are you writing? Are you, are you taking notes? Or is this going to be a story? And I don't think that's self-consciously, but I think you absorb, at least that the kind of writer I am is it's not conscious. It's that absorbing, paying attention, to be invited to tell your story. It's a gift. It's a wonderful gift to give someone, to say, tell me and I will listen. And things will be discovered and a kind of new kind of reality gets created in the telling of the story. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Alice McDermott, some interesting conversations, some rapid fire questions and a wonderful book, Absolution, which we couldn't recommend more strongly. She wrote Charming Billy. What I'm interested to read, she's written a book about writing books called What About the Baby, which I'm sort of interested now to go back and read. Yeah, we have a great, I mean, gosh, we now have a list of books that we love about writing. Anna Quinlan, Write for Your Life, uh, Stephen King's On Writing. Bob Caro's book called Working, which is about research for historic biographies and nonfiction. But Absolution, we couldn't recommend more strongly. Yeah. We have a bookstore this week. It's a little tiny bookshop in Delhi, New York, that's up in the Catskills. The proprietress of the bookshop is Emily Helk. And this was recommended to us by our friend John Doogie in New Jersey, who he got to know Emily there. And uh, she decided she wanted to start a bookstore and uh, decided to go up into the Catskills where they have a good tourist population. And well, it's the little bookshop that could. John Doogie is a book nerd just like us and a fan of the show. So it's worth noting, you guys, as you write in those reviews and you send them saying how fabulous the bookcase is and how desperately you want more of them. <laughs> and you're so and, super excited about and it. And you're so super excited about it and all the authors that we have. That when you do mention a bookstore, we really we look it up because we do we we're big believers in independent bookstores. And so any recommendations you guys have, include them with your reviews. We reach out to them. So without further ado, Emily. Helk and the Lost Bookshop on Main Street in Delhi, New York. Emily Helk, good to talk to you. Nice to have you with us. I can't help but notice the Lost Bookshop is in Delhi, New York. Now, I, I'm not sure many people know where Delhi, New York is. So I looked it up. It's a little town, 5,000 people. You can make a go of a bookstore in a town of 5,000 people? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, so Delhi is part of the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, which has been tourist destination for decades and decades, as I'm sure you both know. So we have a wonderful population of tourists, summer and fall. Uh, we also have a college in town, SUNY Delhi, and we have lots of second homeowners as well. So we have, on paper, the population is 5,000, but it's actually kind of swells seasonally. That's interesting. So do you buy differently? Like, do you stock your bookstore differently depending on the season and who's visiting the town at the time? 
we definitely have seasonal changes. Right now, we are going hard on the mushrooming books <laughs> as, we, as we enter prime mushrooming time. We have a lot of nature and environmentally focused books in our store. So, of course, we're going to move seasonally. And we just opened in May. So all of that remains to be seen. (laughs) I noticed you started as a pop-up store just to see if there would be a good reception for a bookstore in Delhi, New York. And now you've got a permanent spot. What's led you to do this? It started many, many years ago, of course. I think many people who start bookstores have wanted to do it their entire lives. Uh, When I was a little girl, this is a favorite family story. I used to try to resell my favorite books for more, <laughs> more than the cover price because of the, because of the, uh, the <laughs> provenance of having me as their illustrious owner. Um, so I've learned. I've learned uh, my lesson there. <laughs> I've been thinking about it sort of in a very like fantasy type way for many years. The pandemic, of course, brought a lot of changes in my life and my husband's life, including some really difficult ones. We tried to start a family and couldn't, had numerous pregnancy losses. And so after the third loss, I thought, you know, my life is not going to look how I thought it was going to look. And so now I get to decide what it will look like. Well, I I do know that both you and your husband at a very young age had very difficult bouts with cancer. And I suspect, and I'm putting myself in your head, you thought to yourself, if this has been my fantasy, if I don't do it now, maybe I'll never get the chance. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We both had cancer when we were in our 20s. We did not meet in a support group, as most people imagine. Uh, we had cancer. We were together. We each got cancer separately. And it really underscored the a person's inability to plan, to really know the direction their life will take. And so it can be kind of easy to float along in a certain kind of prescribed narrative of what a life is supposed to be. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? No. Those are lovely lives. But when you have cancer young, it kind of rattles that. And then similarly, when we had the pregnancy losses, it felt again like, okay, Emily, in case you didn't know, your life is not going to look like this. So it felt like time to just take the leap. And with full knowledge that it's a hard time to start a business, that it's a hard time to start a book business. But I felt like I will never regret doing this. I will regret not doing it. How did you fall in love with and then end up in Delhi specifically? You know, I'd always dreamed of retiring to a cabin in the woods. And a friend of mine said to me, why are you waiting till you retire? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, you might not get to. And we started looking with, there was a blog that had a feature called five figure Friday of under a hundred thousand dollars cabins in the Catskills. And so we felt like, okay, but that exists. There are houses like that, that exist. So we just drew a circle and found the nicest, least expensive thing we could find. <laughs> and so we've been coming up weekends and summers ever since then. And just really fell in love with the area. It's a beautiful has a wonderful agricultural history, a fascinating history of the place and wonderful communities that are so, so welcoming. You said right now you're stocking a lot of stuff on mushrooms. So you're a fun guy. Yes, I I absolutely had to make that joke. You saw it coming and I still had to make it. I'm sorry, I did. So does that mean your location lends itself often to a lot of naturalism, books about naturalism, hiking, etc.? Absolutely. I mean, the area is full of natural beauty. John Burroughs lived nearby. 
And his Woodchuck Lodge is about 20 minutes away from here, I think. So there's lots of fantastic hiking and beautiful agritourism and all kinds of things like that. The people who come here are definitely very interested in things like foraging and native plants and all of those kinds of great things. So I suck lots of books like that. So I'm interested, you were a bookseller slash hustler when you were a child, um, uh, trying to uh, sell your books at a markup. So I'm interested, like, what what was the gateway drug for you? Is there a most influential book in your life that said, yes, I'm going to be a bookseller? <sighs> That's a great question. When I think of that, I think of the books that I have shoved into people's hands, whether they wanted them or not. <laughs> and one of those books is J.L. Carr's A Month in the Country. Mm-hmm. It's a gentle book about healing and pain and progress and history and time. And it's a gorgeous book that I discovered. It was one of those, I discovered it in an Airbnb while I was doing a clinical trial in DC and I read it in one day. And since then I read it every year and it's, it's the book I return to most and the book that is the bestseller in our store because I constantly tell people they have to read it. Well, you say you read it while you were in a clinical trial. I suspect that was involved with the cancer. And maybe I'm wrong, but I suspect it is. And that's a very vulnerable time in your life. And I would suspect what you read in that period makes an incredible impression. Absolutely. Yes. I was traveling for a clinical trial for my cancer treatment and had a beautiful book with me, but stumbled onto this one. And it has really remained with me and and remains the sort of touchstone book that I go to when I'm really in need of some gentle gentle kindness. Yeah. 600 square feet, but a mighty bookstore in Delhi, <laughs> New York. I'm always suspicious of people who write reviews of stores because you never know if it's the proprietor or not. But somebody described your store as perfectly, unperfectly perfect, which I thought <laughs> was a lovely description. And if you stop in, I suspect you're going to run into Emily Helk. It is at 120 Main Street in Delhi, New York. If you're passing through in the Catskills and we wish you great success and we wish you good health. Yeah. Oh yeah. Both. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. That's awesome. I hope you make a great success of this. I do too. One promise I should make to all those who were listening, we're going to get Kate a a prescription for Ritalin uh, to calm her down (laughs) and get her less super excited. Want to make you aware of the folks who make this podcast possible. And then we'll have a closing coda from Alice McDermott. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer, and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohen, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian at ABC Audio. It's a Seamus Heaney poem, and to me, it so speaks about the gift of literature. It's called The Given Note. On the most westerly blasket in a dry stone hut, He got this air out of the night. Strange noises were heard by others who followed, bits of a tune coming in on loud weather, though nothing like melody. He blamed their fingers and ear as unpracticed, their fiddling easy, for he had gone alone into the island and brought back the whole thing. The house throbbed like his full violin. 
So whether he calls it spirit music or not, I don't care. He took it out of wind off mid-Atlantic. Still, he maintains from nowhere. It comes off the bow, gravely, rephrases itself into the air. Is literature spirit music? I don't know, but does it matter? I love that poem. Mm -hmm.